was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 27. This is the podcast that provides a generous serving of Bond, James Bond, with a side dish of Beluga Caviar and Dom Perignon 53, naturally. As ever, thank you very much for your support, our listeners, our cubbies, for all of your kind words, follows, likes, and listens so far. Do keep the reviews coming in from whichever podcasting platform or app you use. And remember, you can always get in touch with the show with your comments, observations, fan theories, or questions on our social media accounts or via email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. So this week's episode is something a little bit different. Uh, we have, of course, come to the end of our film reviews. So having consumed all the Bond possible in the last few months, there's no better time to look back on all of it and provide one final evaluation. Which were the best? Which were the worst? Yes, this is the best of Bond, our ranking episode. Joining me today to go through the definitive cubbyhole ranking list is, of course, the usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who's been playing Maximilian Largo's global domination video game ever since our last episode. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very good. And I have to say, I've become incredibly uh, proficient at domination risk. It was very difficult to get it set up. Obviously, I don't have a huge mahogany snooker table. Uh, so I did have to knock through a, a few walls in the house just to get that bit in. Uh, and then obviously the screen with the, uh, the map of the world on is very tall. So I then had to knock a few ceilings through. So my house basically is now just a large shell containing Max Largo's domination risk. It's really good, actually, if you get up the Great Britain game because you just start firing at all the individual counties. It's a nightmare for anyone to get Rutland. How is the electricity? Is it battery powered or through the mains? Uh, it's uh, it's battery powered. You have to get really big batteries, though. I've got several car batteries uh, all sort of within the table powering it. To be safe, I've just gone for a 50,000 volt charge with every uh, incorrect fire. Okay, and uh, secondly, it's the man who, rumour has it, drives around Scotland in a yellow Citroen 2CV listening to Eric Serra's avant-garde soundtrack for Goldeneye on a loop. It's, it's Phil. How are you, Phil? Yes, I'm very well, thanks, Martin. Um, how did you know? I, I didn't realise um, you knew I had the 2CV in the garage. Yeah, it's it's not re replendent with uh, with bullet holes, thankfully. It's uh, it's currently in for its servicing. Um, and of course, yes, my love of Eric Serra is... Um, is undiminished. I, I've still got his greatest hits, all two of them. Do we know? Because Eric Serra did do the music for Leon, didn't he? Um, before he did Goldeneye, and, and that's, that's why the experience of love was carried over from that film, because it was originally meant to be on Leon. Do we know, therefore, if Eric Serra had a hand in writing the classic Sting hit, uh, Shape of My Heart? Because I think that was written for Leon, wasn't it? That's pushing my music uh, knowledge, but you could be right, Adam. It's, it's not beyond the bounds of realms of possibility yeah i've just checked it and yes the song shape of my heart was written for leon but no eric sarah had no hand in it it was purely written by sting and his co-songwriter so the one memorable bit of music from leon was not written by eric sarah okay very good so uh, we probably well of course we can't go to the the film synopsis uh, we've got all 24 to cover for today's episode uh, but we will go over to adam who's going to explain how we compiled our rankings list so uh, how did we do it adam 
Yes, so in the style of the uh, outgoing Dominic Cummings, this was purely driven by data uh, and uh, logic. We didn't meet up in person. We haven't discussed this. What we did was each individually went away and did our own personal ranking of uh, the 24 official James Bond films. We've left out Casino Royale 1967 and Never Say Never Again because they're not real ones. Uh, and uh, we basically gave the films points based on how high they came in our own tables. We then put those three results together, totted up the points, and that created our official Roger Moore's Cubby Hole ranking. And in the case of Ties, of which we had three, the film that got the highest individual score from any of us was placed above the other so that's how we resolve those so yeah this is the official ranking that we put together And so coming in 24th and last, it'll be no surprise if you've listened to the podcast, it's Quantum of Solace. This was one of only two films that we all agreed on. We all put this at the bottom. I feel like we, we perhaps went a little bit too hard on this. And now that we have officially kicked it into last, we should perhaps say that, that in its, um, its favour, there are a lot of interesting ideas in the film. Uh, and Daniel Craig is always very, very watchable as James Bond. But the script was completely derailed by the writer's strike. The direction is incredibly pretentious. And I think it does fundamentally misunderstand Bond's character arc from Casino Royale, all of which perhaps goes to explain why we just find it very difficult to love this one. But worth saying, in absolute fairness, it's still better than the unofficial Bond film. So it isn't the worst Bond you can see on the screen. Yeah, I think it's just, it's very clunky from start to finish. And it, it doesn't really work in terms of the franchise. It, it doesn't really fit. But, you know, it's, it's sort of one of those could really do a lot better, I think. Yeah, it even mishandles beloved characters like, uh, like Mr. White. Yeah, he did seem to limp out of that interrogation room incredibly quickly, didn't he, to say how battered and, and injured and indeed shot in the leg he was, because he's been driven straight there from um, the end of Casino Royale, where he is shot. Exactly, and I think something we didn't mention in the episode was uh, thallium is very easily treatable, so uh, Mr White, a bit, a bit stupid, really. He could have been saved. There's also an interesting thing with Quantum in that I've sort of personally taken on a few bonds for veering too far into the realms of fantasy. We talked a bit with Quantum at the time about how realistic it is and about how various people were consulting with actual intelligence services. Do we think this is actually the only real example of Bond going the other way, where you can actually go too realistic and that that is as detrimental to Bond as going too far into fantasy? I think they were still trying to do the mix of realism and fantasy. I think they just missed the mark completely. I mean, yeah, there's, again, things like the CGI, which is extremely clunky in places. I think I think it was just misguided, really, in terms of what they were trying to come up with in, in terms of the final product. So in at number 23 is Die Another Day. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners may have this particular film at the bottom of their list. And to be honest, that's understandable. But for us, and um, for all of us, actually, we all had this one as number 23. Uh, we think it's marginally better than Quantum. I think the, the beginning probably says that uh, I've always enjoyed the pre-title sequence and um, Bond's North Korean capture. Uh, it's just a shame that the film doesn't uh, kind of do more with that initial premise. And uh, obviously things get truly horrific after the uh, introduction of uh, Jinx Johnson uh, and they tried to do too much, kind of stitching together lots of contrived references to the previous films uh, that didn't really work. And uh, I guess the less said about uh, the wooden acting of Toby Stevens, the better, I think. Uh, <laughs> Toby Stevens was acting? 
Um, yeah, it's, it's it's very much deserving of of uh, you know the bottom two places down of the day. You know, we, we've spoken already about the fact that the CGI is so bad. You know, this film really hasn't aged well at all, particularly compared to some of the newer Bond films, which still look really crisp. And then just to, for the pièce de résistance, we get the idiotic ice palace and the stupid car chasers, where you know you've got you've basically got two souped up supercars flying around a, an ice racetrack effectively and then bond has to have a punch up with gustav graves in his you know robocop suit it's just it's just completely stupid you haven't mellowed at all on that car chase then phil I, you went on an epic rant in it in our episode I'd, I'd urge people if they haven't heard it to go back over it i still think that car chase is kind of fun i think the, the reason a lot of people hate this film the most of all of them is they find it really embarrassing and i do get that it does fall into complete sci-fi and self-parody but i do sort of find the embarrassing stuff entertaining still i do still find the idea of two gadget laden cars up against each other quite funny to watch and i do find the sort of crazy innuendo tastic dialogue particularly from halle berry i do sort of find it oddly amusing so i'm not wholly unentertained by this film in spite of the fact that it is pretty naff yeah i'm with you on the car chase adam maybe not so much on the uh the innuendo <laughs> It is very much Brosnan becoming finally Roger Moore in this one, isn't it? I mean, he starts off as quite a postmodern mix of all the Bonds. By this time, because I guess he's a little bit older, he has verged very, very clearly into Roger Moore territory. And let, and let, let us not forget Zhao with his uh, sparkling personality, uh, as Bond's remarks. But that's a really multi-layered joke, because obviously there's the pun about the diamonds in his face. But it's also heavily ironic, because Zhao has no personality whatsoever in that film. So in 22nd place, we have Diamonds Are Forever, um, of the 1971 film that saw Sir Sean Connery return to the role of James Bond. Now, obviously, this was, we didn't feel this was deserving particularly of, of the very bottom spot, but it, we've kind of all been quite consistent in our rankings. Um, we all thought this was quite low down, particularly because of the fact, you know, Sean Connery was quite old at this point. And, and there are some moments where you kind of, you, you sort of cringe looking back at it. But what did you guys think? Do you think this is deserving of where we placed it? Yeah, I mean, objectively speaking, it's a bad film. Before we did this podcast, uh, it was always been, I've always considered it perhaps the worst one. But having gone back over all of them now, I think there's great fun to be had in Diamonds Are Forever and uh, easily better than Die Another Day and, and Quantum for me. Just uh, I think there's plenty of fun to be had if you just accept the film for what it is, which is a, a below par Connery adventure, but with a, a twinkle in his eye. Yeah, absolutely. I think the next uh, few Bond films are very much the naff but quite entertaining ones. And yeah, I, I had a lot more warmth for Diamonds Are Forever this time. I think I put it in my list a little bit higher than you guys. Uh, yeah, it is very brash and it is very American. You know, it feels a bit more like a sort of Rat Pack film than a Bond film. Uh, and I used to really hate this one because of it coming straight after Honor Majesty's Secret Service and just completely distancing itself from everything they did in that film. But it is really good camp fun on its own terms. And it might, for me, have replaced the likes of Man with the Golden Gun and A View to a Kill in terms of the one that I know isn't particularly good, but it's the one I'd very happily go back to just for amusement and for the sake of pure entertainment. And it's also got an amazing moment where there's an elephant in a casino, just has a go on a fruit machine, brings up three elephants and wins the jackpot. You can't fully hate a film with something like that in it. 
I mean, yeah, let's be honest. This was always going to be down at the bottom, but no, I, I totally agree. For, for entertainment value, I think it's deserving of being a little bit higher than Quantum and Dying of the Day. And let's not forget the the icons that are Mr. Winton, Mr. Kibbs, the world's campest henchmen, I think. Credit to John Barry for like that amazingly memorable bit of, I think it's like an oboe or something like that he does for uh, the Winton kid like motif, you know, but... It's just tonally so on the money. Yeah, I think those two villains are a great example, actually, of my overall feelings for Diamonds Are Forever. Like, I used to think they were the worst villains. But now, going back to it, I think uh, Bruce Glover, especially, does a great job, doesn't he, with that character? He is properly malevolent and sinister in it, absolutely. And also, you know, this is very much the film Never Say Never Again should have been. This is Connery acknowledging he's not quite at his peak anymore, but rolling with that and having a bit of a laugh with it. And let's not forget Felix Leiter, probably the worst Felix Leiter of them all in this film. The fact he just turns up and does nothing. Why did you start the sentence with, let's not forget, Phil? We, we did forget. That's the whole point with this, Felix. I know those diamonds are somewhere, James, but I just can't find them. OK, and next up in at number 21, it's A View to a Kill. So, Phil, we'll come to you, I think, first off, because you put this ever so slightly higher than us. I think this is one that really suffered from being watched seventh after all the other Roger Moores, and I, I sort of lost patience with its daftness and its tiredness this time. But I've always found it gloriously silly when taken in isolation. And so it is a little bit of a shame it's so low down. I don't know really how much higher you could put it. Uh, but, Phil, I know you're a particular fan of the daftness of this one. Well, yeah, let me, let me say from the very outset, this I am fully aware that this is a completely stupid film and, and should be lambasted from a critical point of view. But it's just that it's one of those guilty pleasure films for me. It's like, you you, you know, it's it's completely farcical, completely idiotic. And as I said in the episode that we did for Review to a Kill, everybody in that film is on holiday. They're not actually turning up to do a good performance. And there just so happens to be a Bond film that's in the background somewhere. You know, it's it's just, you know, it's basically just a group of mates just out for their jolly holidays. So it's, I fully accept it's a stupid film, but there's there's just something that I always have a warm affection to this one. So I did put it a little, not hugely higher, but I did put it a little bit higher than Martin and Adam, but I fully accept that it is deserving of being in the bottom half just because it, it is the worst Roger Moore film of them all. Okay, I'll, I'll accept that rationale, Phil. <laughs> For me, I think uh, Zoran and Mayday, of course, are very memorable villains. So I think that uh, that saves it from being at the bottom. But yeah, I'd agree with you, Phil. Just very, very silly and, and quite a poor entry. Certainly the worst Roger Moore film. It's a shame that he ended with this one. Uh, but a personal favourite, Godfrey Tibbet. The cameos that I enjoy, a similar cameo, I guess, to Hawker in, uh, in Goldfinger. Yeah, it's always quite fun when Bond is partnered with someone who is clearly too old, really, to be anywhere near this mission. Um, I also want to flag up, I think, my favourite moment in A View to a Kill. Uh, and again, it's a kudos moment to John Barry, which is the descent from Burning City Hall when he's got Stacey Sutton slung over his back. And it becomes this huge heroic moment with the music blaring out. And all Bond's doing is coming down a ladder. But such is the physical state of Roger Moore at this point. This becomes an amazing feat as daredevil and daring as jumping off uh, the mountain with the parachutes in The Spy Who Loved Me. But it's just him climbing down a ladder. And of course, let us not forget, this was the great moment where we, we really did hear the Roger Moore groan, of course. This this gave us the light of the great... Oh! That's pretty good. That's your best impression, that, Phil. It also gave us the Frenchest taxi driver in history when he's just sat there sipping red wine. Oh, no, no, no! 
Not my car. Oh no. And I, I just remembered why Phil has got this slightly higher than we did, Adam. It's the the brilliant Alison Doody as Jenny Flex. Oh yes, this is the Jenny Flex film, who Phil inexplicably loves. Is it the riding breeches more than than anything else? Are you just a real fan of of jockey wear? No, it's it's just the innuendo when she first arrives, where it's just I love a good ride in the morning. Okay, and uh, in at number twenty is the man with the golden gun. Now, this is a film that uh, that I really want to love. I think the settings are great. I think the storyline is decent. Uh, and when you're watching it, you really feel like this this should be a good film. But uh, unfortunately, it's not so great. I think it may be similar to Die Another Day in the sense that it, it gets worse as the film progresses. Uh, but I think there is a dash of Diamonds Are Forever, isn't there? There is fun in places, specifically knickknacks funhouse uh, and of course the great christopher lee as scaramanga absolutely sublime with that character uh, so i guess without him in the film uh, i think this would be in serious danger of being even lower on the list but uh, an excellent villain uh, unfortunately hampered by uh, quite a poor film i thought yeah i think christopher lee certainly rescues this for much of the film it's you kind of look at the direction of the film and it's sort of it's very uh, misguided again let's say so i think we were quite consistent with where we ranked this in in overall as, as a trio so i think it is deserving of being in 20th i mean we put this low but i mean we reference this one incessantly which is a sign that even the naffa bond films we just have a lovely soft spot for it's got a lot of charm this one i think it's charmingly kinky is what I'd say about this. I mean, I mean, right from the word go with, uh, you know, Scaramanga's third nipple and, uh, of course, Bond and the belly dancer in Beirut. I've lost my charm. Not from where I'm standing. There is a really lovely silliness to this one, which I think just about powers it through. But credit also to Maud Adams, because I think she is also fantastic in this film, as alongside Christopher Lee, and gives it a much-needed sense of heart and genuine danger that is kind of missing from the general frolicky nature of the rest of it when Roger Moore's just twisting sumo wrestlers' nappies. I guess we also get the uh, the epic car stunt as well. The barrel roll, excellent, of course, marred by the uh, the slide whistle and the return of uh, of JW. I mean, I guess it was nice to see him, but they could have uh, handled him perhaps a bit better. I only wish there'd been a bit more of JW's wife in this one. Like, you know, if she'd have just been in the back of the uh, the car when Bond steals it, so he's got both JW and Mrs. JW to deal with. She's just in the back. You're going too fast now, you Englishman. I don't like going so quick. You shut up back there, me, Bill. And let's not also forget, this This also heralds the great moment where Sir Roger Moore lobs a uh, small boy into a river as well, which is uh, also a great moment of cinematic history. Bloody tourists! You know what should have happened? They should have extended the finale of that, though. So first him and uh, Goodnight are interrupted by Knickknack. Then they're interrupted by M. They should have then had the small tie boy climbing through the window with his wooden elephant, and he's got to push him off the boat all over again. And then it turns out that locked in a cabin below decks, it's just Mr. and Mrs. JW, and he just hears a random shouting, Lairs out from down here! Lairs out, you dear boy! So on to number 19, we have Moonraker, the 1979 space epic that saw Bond face off against Hugo Drax. So again, one that we were quite consistent on in terms of our own personal rankings. We felt that this probably had a great villain, but there were elements of this film that again fell a little bit flat. 
I actually rather like Moonraker this time around. I had it a little bit higher than, than you guys in my list. I think whereas A View to a Kill suffers a bit being seen in context, this actually gains a little because you see it after The Spy Who Loved Me, you appreciate the fact that it has to be a big bombastic epic like that other film, but also raise the stakes from it. And so where do you go that's bigger than Spy Who Loved Me? Oh yeah, space. Um, I think Roger Moore realistically is the only Bond who can pull off the science fiction with a reasonable amount of aplomb. I mean, thank God Sean Connery never actually did get to space in You Only Live Twice. So yeah, I really enjoyed it this time. And I think actually that when we actually do get to space, thanks largely to Ken Adams' set, it does feel grounded in something that isn't quite sci-fi. Just the general idea that Bond's gone to space is ridiculously fantastical. But from there on in, it's actually played with a refreshing seriousness. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd broadly agree with that, Adam. I think uh, in the past, I would have put this rather lower, actually. But I enjoyed Moonraker this time. Certainly, I'd, I'd forgotten how great Michael Lonsdale is as the uh, the main villain of uh, Hugo Drax, particularly his love of the uh, linguistical flourish as well. Perhaps I didn't appreciate that as a, as a child, but that certainly caught my attention this time. And the comedy that comes from that as well, like all of these beautiful people who clearly don't have a, a clue what he's talking about in his speech, but... <laughs> But it's just something charming about it on the the space station, and and the serious moments as well, like the the murder scene with the the dogs, is actually quite harrowing, isn't it? Uh, so it's not uh, it's not all a caper. There are some uh, quite serious and and decent moments in this one. So um, quite low on the list, but not certainly not the worst. And the centrifuge uh, sequence as well. I mean, that is genuinely really intense and you don't know quite how Bond's going to get out of it. it. It really takes that idea of the traction table, I guess, from Thunderball and runs with it and builds on it and makes it this epic kind of dangerous moment. Uh, but then, yeah, it's also a film which uses the same henchman to have a crazy fight in a glass factory and, and ultimately sends him for a piano. So, so that is the beauty of Moonraker. It, it's able to contrast both of these things. Yeah, I, I can see where you guys are coming from, because certainly before we kind of did the podcast, um, you know, I'd have placed Moonraker probably at the very bottom of my list, but actually coming back to it and actually seeing it again after so many years, there, there is so much more to the film that, and, you know, and I enjoy it so much more now. Again, the ending is is still pretty silly, but, you know, the fact that Michael Lonsdale as Hugo Drax is so intimidating, you know, Martin, as you've mentioned, there's so many scenes where there's a lot more tension and suspense and it, it actually builds to that as well. Also, just on the Jaws's girlfriend, Dolly, where is she actually from? Because she's not Brazilian, I don't think. So she's clearly just also on holiday when she meets Jaws and, and yet somehow ends up going into space with him. I mean, that is the most escalated holiday romance, I think, in the history of holiday romances, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to say, it's like it's the fastest romance I think we've ever seen because literally they're, they're on the cable car and she's sort of with a group of friends and then she just randomly starts going out with George. You know, there's there's no build-up to it. They're literally just Jaws and Dolly in space. Maybe that's a, a spin-off series we should have seen where they're battling aliens from uh, far-out planets. Well, does, does Dolly actually say anything in this? Of course, she famously bears her teeth that don't have braces, but I don't think she, she utters a word, does she? No, she doesn't have a line. She's, she's the quiet power behind the throne that is Jaws. I wonder what they did together afterwards when they returned to Earth. Do you reckon they just opened a um, like a little consultancy somewhere or like a bookshop? A skydiving business. Like it's, Jaws will save you even if the uh, the parachute fails to open. Do you reckon, no, they must have opened uh, an orthodontic surgery, mustn't they? 
So at number 18 is The World Is Not Enough. And I feel a little bit bad that this film is quite so far down the list because I think it is a solid and thrilling and pretty good Bond film. It's just that we're now getting into the realms of films which are, are really good and, and are a little bit better than it and have an edge. I do still think what I felt um, in our episode, I think there's a gulf between the film's ambitions, i.e. it's trying to get a little bit more post-millennial, a little bit more subversive in what it's doing with the characters, particularly, you know, the, the leading Bond woman also being the main villain. Uh, I think that is kind of in tension with Brosnan's performance, which is going a little bit more towards the sort of broadly comedic Roger Moore style. Um, but I think there are still Still some really good memorable action scenes in this i think there are some really good performances again villains really do carry this one phil you put this a little bit higher than us actually you had this as high as 14th in your list so so you're a little bit more amenable towards it than i am yeah i mean i i, I see obviously what people say about it, you know the fact that particularly going coming after you know golden iron tomorrow never dies that you know it is a weaker entry but you know i still think they were trying to do something really interesting with this film and they were trying to give a more multi-dimensional character to sophie marceau's character as electric king but i i do agree there are elements that fall short pierce brosnan attempting a russian accent is uh, misguided let's say and and there's moments where you know particularly denise richards where she was kind of probably miscast if, if we're being kind so I, I think I've, I've placed this probably a couple of levels higher than than yourself and, and Martin Adam but I accept it's, it's not worthy of the top 10 it's it's certainly lower down yeah I think I, I share your regret Adam of having this one so low but there are it's just slightly weaker than uh, all of the films that we've got uh, above but I agree with you Phil I think uh, Electra King a great character for this one great villain I always liked Judy Dench as M, uh, so I quite enjoyed that she had uh, a good prominent role in in this film. And uh, personally, I quite like uh, Robbie Coltrane as well. He's always a uh, good value uh, in his role as uh, Zukovsky. Do you think the caviar that Robbie Coltrane fell into was then just released as Zukovsky-flavoured caviar? Oda Zukovsky. Oda Valentin. There's a bit of a missed opportunity with uh, the henchman Gabor as well, isn't there? You know, the, the larger, I think, uh, John Seru played him in the film, Electra King's bodyguard, because he kind of doesn't get any moments to shine at all. And he's kind of just shot in the end. Uh, but he plays a much more prominent role in the video game where you're as Bond left in a prison cell with him and you have to escape by essentially engaging him in a fist fight. But the way to win in the video game was to actually just crouch down and continually pummel him in the groin until he he dies. I mean, is there a way they could have got that into the film? I mean, it would have been an unusual segue, wouldn't it, if, if Bond just escapes from that weird S&M torture chair and then just punches Gabor in, in the balls for about 10 minutes until he, he very gradually, you know, kind of comic, comedically sort of falls to the floor very slowly. OK, and uh, in at number 17... It's You Only Live Twice. So this one, I feel much like uh, The Men with the Golden Gun, Bond getting into trouble as he visits Asia. But we do have in this film Worksop's finest Donald Pleasance as uh, perhaps the most recognisable Ernst Stavro Blofeld. This one is a very extravagant Bond film, isn't it? We get uh, some decent performances from the, uh, the Bond women and uh, we do get a very good ally in the form of Tanaka. Adam, I believe uh, you're not such a fan of uh, this one. What were your thoughts on this film? 
Yeah, I, I I think there's a lot to like on this film. Don't get me wrong. It is exotic. It's epic. There are some truly iconic moments in it. I think it is just the first time that Bond gets a bit too big for its own boots. It strays a little too far into fantasy. Um, and we should, I guess, both credit and sort of condemn Roald Dahl for that. He is writing the screenplay. Uh, and it's the first Bond film which is drastically different from the novel it's adapted from. It, it's totally, totally changed. Uh, and so a lot of those bonkers elements, which are great, like the sort of... Of helicopter fight like the sort of hollowed out volcano lair are things that he added but a lot of the more sort of dodgy kind of bond going through japan stuff is also a stuff that we need to lay at his door uh, and and the other thing for me is i think connery as we've mentioned a few times he's clearly not quite in fifth gear in this one he's he, he he hated filming in japan he found their press very intrusive and i do think some of that disgruntlement creeps into the film uh, so yeah generally speaking i don't hate this film by any means there's a lot of good stuff in it uh, but i just think there are a lot of better ones out there yeah, I was kind of in the same ballpark, really, Adam. I, I felt that, you know, looking back from this, when I used to watch it as a kid, it was sort of, I had those sort of rose-tinted spectacles, maybe, where you sort of, you look back at elements of it with fondness, but as an adult, you now kind of look back and you think there are there are a few moments that are a little bit cringy, you know, the, the fact that Bond has to kind of go undercover almost, and, and you get that awkward moment where he's getting the fake plastic surgery, which is is supposedly making him look more Asian, which is, which hasn't aged well at all. There there are elements that I still really enjoy, you know, the fight sequence at the end, and and again Donald Pleasance's portrayal of Blofeld. But yeah, it's it's kind of one of those ones where you, certainly Sean Connery's done a lot better, and uh, it's probably into the twilight of his Bond career. So it's probably one that's not really looked on with as much affection as his earlier roles. Yeah, I think it's a real pity because the the Japanese setting is quite spectacular, isn't it? And they, and they do use it quite well in that uh, in that death scene with Ekib. So it's a real shame that it's not used to its full potential. I don't think. And uh, although I do quite like the uh, the comedy we get when he's searching out the Ningpo at the uh, at the docks and he starts just shooting everyone who is chasing him down. Yeah, and I love how uh, Tiger Tanaka is incredibly secretive as and when it suits him. On the one hand, he uses a private subway so that he never really appears above ground. On the other hand, he will just send out a helicopter with a huge magnet on the bottom of it to pick up a car, carry it over Tokyo and dump it in the river in a way that pretty much the entire city is going to see that and just be like, well, hang on, who's, who's doing that? Who's, whose helicopter's that? So on to number 16, and it's Live and Let Die. Now, this was one that had a little bit of disparity between the three of us. Martin, you placed this um, actually within your top 10, but myself and Adam, we placed it a little bit lower, so it did fall down the rankings. Let's be honest, it hasn't really aged that well. There are moments in this film where you, you kind of you cringe quite badly, but there are some fun moments. Obviously, the, the boat chase is quite exciting, and, and we do get a great performance from Yafet Koto. But for me personally, it, it kind of fell down the list just because, there, obviously, you know, that we've we talked about things like the black exploitation element of this film and the fact that, you know, solitaire Jane Seymour is, is dealt quite a, a harsh deal with in terms of how her character is portrayed. So it's it's not one that's aged well, let's say. Uh, yeah, for me, Live and Let Die is one of Roger's best, which I know Adam will not be happy with me saying, but uh, I think where the franchise was at the time, Lazenbeard quit. They were even thinking about perhaps bringing Sean Connery back again. 
uh, and I think Roger Moore does a great job considering it's his first Bond film uh, I think he does a, a solid job of course he is a bit awkward in those love sequences and of course the storyline doesn't help in those love sequences with the uh, Solitaire's character being a virgin and he's uh, kind of tricking her into bed so I, I do admit those very awkward areas of the film uh, but for me the other areas make up for it I think I think uh, Yafet Koto as you said Phil is a great villain so it's a nice mixture of a very serious character who has a very comedic end Kananga going banga oh well how else was I going to defend uh, living that die don't know I'll let Adam go you can go Adam yeah I agree on Yafet Koto and I don't think there is a single funnier moment in the entire Bond franchise than than the death of uh, Dr Kananga when he literally just blows up like a balloon um for me the problem with this and I do agree actually Martin Roger Moore is great in this and and from the word go his Bond is kind of just there despite the fact they don't know how to write for him yet um but the, the whole film for me just feels very cartoony uh you know we're in this sort of black drugs world and yet it's black exploitation black drugs world where in then the deep south but it's redneck tastic deep south we are then in you know the sort of caribbean islands and we're dealing with superstition and voodoo but it's full-on supernatural voodoo which isn't really explained in any substantial way and so just the, the element of realism that i really need in bond films is kind of missing in this in the same way that it gets a bit lost in the more sci-fi ones and let us not forget, this did introduce us to the uh, the great Sheriff J.W. Pepper. So, you know, there, there were sort of great moments in this film, but uh, they're, they're all together fleeting, I think. I'd say, uh, I mean, uh, perhaps I'm not helping my argument for being positive about Live and Let Die, but bear with me. Uh, to compare it to Never Say Never Again, <laughs> Never Say Never Again was a very 80s film. And we said it was massively dated by being 80s. This one is a massively 70s film, but you don't feel, or at least I don't feel like, I feel like you can go along with it. Whereas Never Say Never Again, you don't jump into the 80s and say, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm with this film. Whereas this one is very 70s. And well, for me anyway, I do go along with it, despite its, uh, its flaws, as you've as you quite rightly pointed out. Perhaps it's fair. I think we've balanced each other out. I think, Adam, you've got this too low. Maybe I've got this too high. So it's, uh, it falls in the middle. And moving on to number 15, it's Thunderball. Now, I, I was rather more of a fan of this one than you two. I placed this quite a bit higher in my list. Um, I think this is just Bond in full pomp, uh, the height of Bond mania. I think it's a great epic. It feels huge. The storyline feels very high stakes. You get the urgency and the jeopardy of what Bond is trying to foil. Um, Terence Young coming back as director means I get that I think the high style of the first two Bond films is combined with that sense of bigger, bolder action sequences. So I thought I thought this was Bond in full pump mode, uh, but I was more of a fan of it than you guys. You, you guys don't quite agree that it's, it's as good as I think it is. When I was looking back at this, I actually placed this at about number 15, and it's there are moments of this film that I really enjoy. You know, there's great characters. You know, you get Fiona Volpe, you get Emiliano Largo, you get, uh, you know, brilliant henchmen throughout as well. You know, there's that sinister element to it. Perhaps the moment for me that, that falls down a little bit is towards the end, obviously, when Domino kills Largo, and, you know, you get that great payoff. But the speedboat chase is a, is a little bit jerky and you get the, the sort of the backing screen, which seems to be sped up. And, and some of the underwater fight sequences do seem to go on for quite a while. But I still maintain, I still enjoy Thunderball. I still think it is a really good, good film for me. 
Yeah, I think maybe the, the placing of this one being after all of the uh, the great Connery films that I love, I think there's an unfavourable comparison, perhaps. Uh, so maybe I'm a bit unfair, I think, on uh, on Thunderball. If you're pardon the pun, I just can't get on board with the, with the Largo character. I don't know why, there's just something about him I just don't like. I mean, I guess you're not supposed to like the villains, but I just don't really like his portrayal for some reason. But there are, I mean, there are some good elements to this. I think the uh, the underwater scenes are a bit long, but uh, but they are relatively entertaining, I think. And uh, Domino, of course, is one of my favourite uh, Bond women. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, Thunderball, uh, a decent entry. Yeah, I, I think certainly Largo does suffer coming straight after Auric Goldfinger. Like He's played with much more of a straight bat and with much more of an edge of danger to him, which I quite enjoy. I disagree entirely with you, Phil. I love that fight on the speedboat. I, I love the avant-garde choppiness of it, and I love how high energy it is. Uh, it, it's generally a very high energy film. I mean, Bond is incredibly energetic. He's running around everywhere in those blue shorts, showing his legs off. He's sleeping with quite a lot of women. He's, he's you know, he's doing a lot of scuba diving as well. How's he getting all of this energy well i do enjoy quist as well you remember the world's worst bond villain taken out by a shower and then he goes back to largo and says yeah i failed feeding to the sharks was too good for him so in at number 14 it's spectre this one as we mentioned in our review of spectre a very divisive film some Bond fans and reviewers believe it's uh, worse than the unofficial Bond films, which uh, to me is just uh, absolutely mental. Yes, Blofeld being the foster brother of uh, Bond is a bit silly and uh, tying together all of uh, Craig's stories was a bit clumsy. Uh, and I guess there were some odd plot contrivances as well, like shooting down the Blofeld's helicopter with a, a single bullet. So I guess for some people that combines to create the hatred for this film. But for us, I thought uh, maybe me and Adam more so that doesn't detract from the other spectacular parts we get to the film, like the, the pre-title sequence and uh, some great cinematography all round, I think, and, and, and an excellent performance by Daniel Craig, who always gives a good performance, but I think he's particularly good in uh, Inspector. I think that you guys place this one quite high. I think I've probably dragged this one down a little because I, I place this quite low, really. But I, I do concede that after, obviously watching it in the cinema, I was, I was left to feeling a little cold by it. And then obviously watching it back again, I enjoyed it more. I, I did find it more engaging. But yeah, the, there were elements where, again, I, I still feel a li- it feels a bit clinical in a way. I'm not sure... You know, particularly coming after Skyfall, it just seems it just doesn't. It seems to be in its shadow almost. So it's there's just something about Spectre. I just I just can't really get into it. I can't really enjoy it as a Bond film. And it's maybe that's that's the shortfalling on my side. But it just leaves me feeling a bit cold, really. Well, as we discussed in the episode, I think that's deliberate. It, it's a very purposefully chilly film, but I really like that about it. And you're right, it, it, it has an awfully big act to live up to coming after Skyfall. But for me, it, it does that. And, and yeah, narrative missteps aside, I think this is just a first-rate piece of filmmaking. It's atmospheric, it's engrossing, it's visually incredibly stunning. I just think quality oozes out of every pore of this film. Uh, I think the action sequences, because they're all staged largely in camera, really have a kick and a spectacle to them uh and yeah i i just i do think this is a really fantastic solid bond film uh i i really don't get why so many people take so badly against it i i think that's just craziness i think there are so many worse bond films yeah i remember when spectre came out and generally it was very positive wasn't it people thought spectre was good and then since then there's been some kind of revisionist history of spectre saying that it's terrible uh, so I'm not sure, I don't know, is that just in fashion, the, the latest Bond film, uh, especially because there's been such a gap and we haven't had no time to die yet. Maybe some people might think that it's uh, it's an in- 
interesting, edgy opinion to, to say Spectre was terrible. I think so, yeah, because, I mean, it got an awful lot of five-star reviews from like all the major broadsheet critics. Uh, and, and yeah, like it is, I think it's still one of the five highest-grossing films of all time at the UK box office. Uh, one thing about Spectre is Bond really needs to go on changing rooms, doesn't he? Because that flat is in an appalling state. That's in serious need of some decoration. He's got, like, a TV in there, and he's got a little chair, and that's about it. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, he's hardly there, isn't he? I mean, we only really saw it in Doctor No and uh, and occasionally in some of the early films, and then he's barely ever seen in his own apartment, so it's it's understandable he's never there. Yeah, but it's it's really plush in Doctor No. It it looks like a you know a proper swanky bachelor pad. He needs to get back to that. He needs to get some style in. He needs Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen to come and put some purple drapes in. Yeah, maybe that's the start of No Time to Die. We just see him and Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen discussing uh, home furnishings in his apartment. So to number 13, and it's For Your Eyes Only. So the first 80s Bond film uh, from 1981. Myself and Adam rated this one quite highly. Um, Martin, you placed it a little bit lower, so it's it's in at number 13. For me, it's it's one of those films that I always enjoy coming back to. You know, it's a really great big adventure one, and obviously there's great moments of obviously the revenge plot with Melina Havelock. Yeah, I'm with you, Phil. I really love how different, um, certainly to the previous two and, and really to all of the previous four Roger Moore films, I think it's his best performance as Bond. I think he gets to show so much more emotional range in this one. Uh, the, the grief of that very brief romance with uh, Countess Liesel, that sort of paternal instinct he has with uh, Melina, uh, the fact that he is caught up in, in this sort of intriguing, kind of small-scale um, sort of smuggling plot, but one which really fleshes out all the characters involved and gives them real three-dimensionality and yeah it's it's just for me a really pleasingly intimate and autumnal film one that I think solely and, and uniquely amongst the Bond films kind of leans back into how old Bond is at this point we'll see if No Time to Die does a similar thing uh, but but I just really like that it acknowledges Moore's advancing years and actually is a much more distinguished character driven film because of that I think it's a really great risk-taking film this one a proper hidden gem yeah, I guess it uh, remains slightly hidden for me, but I think uh, you guys have helped me to uh, uncover the gem that it is. This one stands out a bit more for me uh, now after our most recent viewing. And I think there are some excellent characters in there as well. I really enjoyed Topol and, uh, and of course, Max the Parrot, who can forget him. So uh, maybe on my next view viewing, I think it could be even higher in my ranking. So I'd certainly uh, I'd go along with uh, with what you said there. Perhaps the one weakness is, of course, B.B. Dahl, the, the misguided approach to, to have her in the film. And obviously Bond is, is not keen on her advances. So, you know, the, there is, I guess it's sort of played for comedy, but it's, uh, it's misguided again, let's say. You put your clothes on and I'll buy you an ice cream. Did she ever win the gold? This is another great unanswered Bond series question. Did B.B. Dahl ever go on and win that gold medal that she wanted? Is this another spin-off idea where basically B.B. Dahl just goes around, maybe she solves mysteries whilst ice skating, maybe that's, that's a new spin-off series. Okay, and in at number 12, it's Octopussy. I'm not sure I'd have had this and for your eyes only this way around myself, but it is very much the other hidden gem of the Roger Moore era. I guess what I really like about this one is it's kind of two films in one. You know, the first half of it is very much Roger Moore faffing around India in that sort of great 
proto portillo travelogue way that he does but then in the second half of the film it becomes a properly high stakes cold war thriller with the the nuclear bomb on the train you know roger moore having that crazy dash through trains automobiles and clown suits to try and defuse the bomb um great performances all around from moore from maud adams from louis jordan so yeah i, I think very much in the right place on the list this one just outside of that top 10 yeah, I agree, Adam. For me, this is some of my most enjoyable sort of action sequences from the whole franchise. You know, that train, those train stunts are so dramatic, and you know they did them for real. And it's it is just a brilliant setup the way that's all done. And obviously, the way the Mercedes gets smashed to pieces as it hits the train, and the real risk for the for the stuntmen as well. You know, the fact that one more has got hit by it. So it's a great setup, and for me, it's I really do love this film. Yeah, I'd say this is one of the the revelations that I've had in our in our podcasting experience. Octopussy, I always thought was not so good. Maybe I just judged it purely based on the title being a ridiculous title, Octopussy, um, and then I didn't give a chance to the film. But uh, if you do give it a chance, I think it's just an excellent entry into the Bond franchise. Actually, I did. I think my rankings, I had this creeping in into the top ten. It was uh, number ten. But uh, I think overall, I think we've uh, judged it quite fairly. Some excellent characters, particularly uh, Stephen Burkov's mad portrayal of uh, all of and uh, yeah louis jordan another french actor giving a great performance as a, as a bond villain so yeah i thought uh, excellent octopusy really really good really gone up in my estimations and as has the uh, the neem valley railway Oh yeah, the Neem Valley Railway. How is that uh, bonus episode broadcast from the Neem Valley Railway uh, coming along, Phil? Have they, have they said yes to us yet? Do you know, I still need to investigate that, actually. This is this is my new project. I need to... Maybe we should do it from, from railway journeys from across the UK. We'll just start the Neem Valley Railway and then we'll just broadcast uh, historic railway venues across the UK. It'll be the, the Grand Central Railway next. Yeah, and then we get Michael Portillo in a Mr. Blobby pink uh, suit to, to come on board and just do a sort of guided tour of uh, Bond railway locations in the UK. My Bradshaws now tells me that on this particular juncture, if you do look to your right, you'll see a clown clutching a Favage egg going through some reeds. And in at number 11, just missing out on our top 10 spot is Dr. No. So where it all started for Bond on the silver screen, such memorable moments set the blueprint for all future Bond films. Uh, we had the introduction of Bond in the casino. We had Ursula Andress, the first Bond woman emerging from the water. And uh, Joseph Wiseman, who I think uh, rather underrated performance as the titular villain. So uh, for me, I think uh, Dr. No... I mean, you get the sense that maybe it should be higher, but there are other films that came after Dr. No that do extend the blueprint and uh, they are a little bit more entertaining. But uh, I think uh, taken on its own, I think Dr. No is a really solid entry, isn't it? Yeah, I agree, Martin. I think that, you know, it's certainly deserving of being in the, towards the top 10, you know, if, if not getting into it. So it's it's very much, you know, a film that kind of, you know, set up what we'd all anticipate from the Bond franchise moving forward. And, you know, and as you say, it set that blueprint. So, you know, I, I think we should always respect this film and, and give it credit because it, it is a really great entry. Yeah, for me, this is this just kept creeping higher and higher up my personal rankings until it was in my top 10. I just love the purity of this one. As you said, all of those Bond elements are there in prototype form, just very purely expressed. 
I think the direction is fantastic, the stylishness, the sophistication. It feels utterly timeless and yet of its time. You know, it, it's just the epitome of 60s cool and yet it's aged incredibly well, far better than some of the films that uh, came after it. Uh, and yeah, just it, all around the film, there's that tone of the exotic, the sexy, the dangerous. Connery, I think, is, is just mesmerising as Bond in this one. He nails absolutely everything. Uh, he's not quite got the confidence and, and the sheer charisma that he brings into his next two or three performances as Bond, but just the character is absolutely 100% there. So no, I really love this one. And it's just, everybody seems to be on song again. You know, we've got great, uh, sort of Jack Lord being in it as well. And obviously we get Connery with the iconic line to set it all up. And, you know, we have Sylvia Trench in it. There's just so many brilliant performances and it's still one of those films that you really love going back to every time. And it's, and it's one that's, that's really cherished, I think. Yeah, and John Kitzmiller as a quarrel as well. I mean, that, that's a character that isn't given a, an amazingly uh, appropriate time in, in the screenplay. There's a little bit of datedness to that character's representation. But he injects so much warmth and vitality into that character. I mean, you remember him long after the film's finished. And his death really does hit home in a way that occasionally, you know, the deaths of Bond's allies don't really hit you that hard. But that one really, really does. The violence of it and the fact that it's happened to someone we've come to really admire and like. Number 10. So in at number 10, we have Tomorrow Never Dies, Pierce Brosnan's second film outing, the one that came just two years after Goldeneye, and one that, again, we kind of all remember fondly. It was kind of our generation for Bond films. A really great sort of action-packed, bombastic-style Bond film that kind of goes back to some of the more Roger Moore-style films. For me, a great villain, a great setup in terms of what was at stake. And, you know, we're going away from the books. We're going more into sort of media mogul villainry. So for me, I felt this was really deserving of being within the top 10, um, just simply because of my own childhood memories of, of how fondly I remember this film. Yeah, I think that's similar to me, Phil. I think this is an integral part of my childhood when I first really became interested in Bond. Objectively speaking, I'd probably say that it might, it should be lower on my ranking list, but it's in the top 10 just for those nostalgic feelings. Carver is just a ridiculous villain, so over the top, but there's something about Jonathan Price's portrayal that I really enjoy. And Brosnan, I think, proving that he is an excellent Bond, despite um, later in his Bond career, uh, it kind of goes into a a more jokey tone that maybe doesn't match the other storylines. But here, I think it's uh, excellent and uh, and obviously my favourite, Dr. Kaufman as well. I'm just a professional doing a job. Uh, yeah, you guys um, championed the Brosnan films a lot more than I did in your rankings, but I am really pleased this made uh, the top 10 because, like you say, we've so much nostalgic uh, charm and value for this one. It was my favourite growing up as well. It was the one that was the first one I was aware of the release of, the first one I got really excited about. And it is still a really exciting film. It's the peak of that imaginative white-knuckle Bondian action that we all know and love. And, and remarkable it came out as well as it did, considering it had the same rushed production and writer's strike issues that befell Quantum of Solace and we've already explained how that one turned out. Uh, yeah, and, and so prescient in terms of its villain as well being this sort of fake news mogul, I guess. I mean, this must surely be Donald Trump's favourite Bond film, mustn't it? Elliot Carver is a great guy. A lot of smart people say he's a great guy. He knew exactly what he was doing. He just had the news like that. Very smart guy. In Trump's interpretation, Carver doesn't die at the end as well. It's, uh, it's Brosnan that's destroyed by that uh, CVEC drill. <laughs> 
when Donald Trump watches this, he just pauses the film uh, just before the uh, the drill comes at him, and then he just fast forwards it on and says, "Yeah," and then and then he got out. That's just what happened. Okay, we just stop it there, and then he, he's okay. I think there's some great portrayals of sort of female characters in this as well. You know, sort of Paris Carver and Wei Lin are both brilliant in this as well. Obviously, but portrayed by Terry Hatcher and. Michelle Yeoh, credit to, to the whole cast for the way they portray it. You know, I, I love Jonathan Price as his sort of maniacal media mogul. I love Terry Hatcher as Paris Carver, you know, this sort of downtrodden trophy wife who, who just wants out. And of course, as Michelle Yeoh as the as Wei Lin as the sort of the high kicking sort of Bond ally that's that's kind of got his back when when he needs someone the most. So it's it's a great sort of buddy move as well in that sense. You know, these great character portrayals. Number nine. Okay, on to number nine, and we finally get to a Dalton. It's Licence to Kill. Me and Phil, I think, put the Daltons a little bit higher than Martin did. Um, I think Licence to Kill is a fantastic film. It's still the most startling and shocking of all the Bond films. It's violent, it's sadistic, um, it embraces a greater realism in a way that's really sinister, and it predicts a lot of the more sort of risky, character-driven uh, moves that the Bond franchise makes when Daniel Craig comes to the table. But with Dalton, obviously, in this case, really pushing the envelope in terms of the emotional gamut, I guess, that Bond can run in a film. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I think this one deserves its place in the top 10. Uh, for me, I think this is probably Dalton at his best in this one. You know, it's, it's, it's really his brutal Bond, you know, because there's, there's elements of horror in this film. You know, the fact that Fran Sanchez is so ruthless and so sadistic. And, you know, you get the sense that he's probably closer to an actual real world villain than what we've kind of seen before or since, really. You know, this sense that he's an unstoppable drug kingpin. He can manipulate anyone to do what any of his bidding and, and obviously Bond is then out for revenge because he has to um you know avenge what has happened to Felix Leiter and Della and it's it's just that great development of those plot lines, you know, the the sense that Bond is then trying to undermine Fran Sanchez almost from the inside. It's just so, so brilliantly acted by everyone in it, I think. Perhaps with the exception of Talisa Soto, who maybe does let it down a little bit, but for everyone else, it's um, it's one of their finest moments, I think. Yeah, I think I had this one was outside of my top 10, but I think uh, you guys rightly, I think, boosted it in the, the overall cubbyhole rankings into the top 10. Slowly but surely, I am being brought round by the, the Dalton films, which uh, as a kid, I didn't particularly like. But yeah, I think I, I go along with what you're saying there, Phil. I think this is uh, an excellent entry into the Bond franchise. I think maybe because it is so different, I think that's why I didn't have it so high. But I certainly enjoy Dalton's very serious portrayal. I like that he took the character so seriously. And I like the fact that the, the villains are incredibly menacing in this film. So even the minor ones like uh, Benicio Del Toro, uh, his character is, is really impressive as well. So uh, yeah, I think License to Kill, I think um, as, as time goes on, I think this will probably go even further up my list. I think that the, the more serious adult tone of this one is key because throughout the 80s, the action film really undergoes a sort of resurgence. We get the Schwarzenegger and Stallone action films, things like Beverly Hills Cop. This um, in the box office went up against, you know, Tim Burton's Batman and like a lethal weapon to uh, The Last Crusade. And so I think for me, it, it really does show that the Bond films are not you know, trying to compete with those directly, but they are taking that darker edge, that more violent edge, and actually incorporating it into what the Bond films do well. And I think this handles that really successfully and in a really intriguing, different way. So in at number eight, it's Skyfall. 
Now, this one, a beautiful cinematography, I thought, for Skyfall and an emotional farewell story for Judy Dench's M. She's uh, integral to the plot for this one. And I just think a great combination of uh, old Bond references. It kind of does what Die Another Day was, uh, I guess, trying to do in having a mixture of uh, modern film, modern storyline, modern elements alongside those classic Bond references. I think it just pulls it off brilliantly well. I guess it wasn't so long ago that it came out of the cinema. I do remember going with uh, a fellow Bond fan and I think midway through the film, we just kind of looked at each other and thought, yes, this is this is what we wanted, especially after the disappointment of Quantum. Yeah, I think the whole setup is brilliant. As well. I mean, actually looking through the rankings, I think I put this one quite low, really, but um, I put about 12th and it really, really does deserve to be top 10. Daniel Craig is super, probably his best performance, in my opinion. Judy Dench has much more to do in this one. And, and you know, and she portrays the role of M much um, in you know brilliantly as well it feels so modern and it feels so advanced you, you get the sense that like we've said before with the connery films the fact that they've not really aged over time they still feel fresh now you get the sense that skyfall will be like that it won't really age over time we could watch it in 20 years time and it'll still feel fresh yeah, Sam Mendes was was a bit of a left field choice to direct this inspector. He wasn't really known for action films, but he just brings such a classiness and a prestigious element to, to his two, which I've, I've just loved watching him do. This feels like an art house Bond film. It's visually painterly. Um, the drama has the richness of theatre. It's a real deep dive into the character. Uh, yeah, and, and it just sort of brilliantly examines the legacy of Bond on the 50th anniversary, who he is, where he's come from and where he might go next and why he is still so admired and why we still love these films this is a film that expresses all that brilliantly uh, it's not without its slight flaws i mean the, the things we didn't really talk about but which were picked up on at the time uh were both to do with severin actually the sort of creepy uh shower bit where bond kind of just wanders in uh full nude uh, without really being invited. It's a little bit pussy galore in the barn. Uh, and then the sort of death of Severin being undercut by that quite flippant gag about a waste of good scotch. Um, I don't know, how do we feel about those moments now? They were much sort of criticised at the time, whilst the film itself was quite admired. What do we think to them? You know, Severin as a character is is a really great addition. I, for me, I think she probably, she does get a bit of a raw deal in the fact of how little time she has in the film. You know, there could probably have been more character development in terms of that. You know, we could have seen her a bit more. But I think that she was she was a good addition to the film and perhaps the, the criticisms were maybe justified at the time. Yeah, maybe she doesn't get enough screen time, does she? So we haven't that relationship hasn't built up enough for us then to have that scene in the in the shower. But uh, yeah, I think uh, Skyfall overall excellent, really, and very emotional when uh, when M dies at the end. And a quick shout to Welcome to Scotland, Albert Finney as well. God bless you, sir. Number seven. Okay, so on to number seven, and it's the debut for Timothy Dalton in The Living Daylights, the 1987 film, which um, obviously, again, directed by John Glenn, which saw Bond being uh, sent into the world of espionage once again, where he had to infiltrate uh, Brad Whitaker, the ruthless arms dealer. For me, again, one of my all-time favourite Bond films, I place this quite highly, really. Um, I think I place this fourth overall. So for me, one of the very best, and certainly, you know, kind of distancing what we'd seen before with the Roger Moore films. 
Yeah, I agree, Phil. Uh, Dalton, I just love as Bond. I think he is so rich and multi-layered in, in what he's doing. There's a real psychological grit and realism. Uh, and this film, I, I think we all put uh, The Living Daylights slightly above License to Kill, although we, we put them sort of in the same place on our list. So we find it very hard to call between the two, but we do all agree Living Daylights is slightly better. Uh, and I think that's because it is a great late Cold War thriller. It, it, it has stark similarities to the spy who came in from the cold. And it, it recaptures the spirit and the style of From Russia With Love for me. So it, it's a real sort of callback to that other great proper spy, proper espionage thriller uh, that Bond used to be. I think there's a really great return to that in this one. Yeah, and from a character perspective, I uh, I really enjoy the other uh, sliminess of uh, Jeroen Krebe's Koskov and, uh, and also of uh, Pushkin as well. I think uh, working together with uh, British forces, I think that's a quite an interesting dynamic that they've got. And of course, uh, Marion Darbo as the, uh, as the Bond woman of as Cara Malovi, starting off as fairly innocent, just as a cellist uh, who is dragged into this world um, of, of the spy games. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, for me, slightly better than uh, License to Kill and uh, definitely deserving of the top 10. Let's not also forget, this probably has the most gadget laden bond car we've probably ever seen with the aston martin v8 vantage that great sequence as car and bond are trying to escape the authorities and uh, you get those great sequences on the ice where the aston martin has to to use the rocket boost power and uh, and use the outrigger to to be able to escape so there's there's some wonderful moments in this film and and again, I love the cinematography behind it, the way that the sequences are shot and the richness of the cinematography is just fantastic. There is, for me, one key scene missing from The Living Daylights, which is at the very end, we should have cut from every major character in the film who is still alive, enjoying this kind of concert uh, at, you know, at a classy Viennese opera house. And then we just cut to Miss Moneypenny alone in her flat, listening to some Barry Manilow tapes, having been left behind and forgotten by everyone. Just in tears because, yeah, nobody's come to see her. No one invited her. Maybe Q's there as well. He didn't merit an invite either. Even even the sort of Afghan Mujahideen resistance uh, managed to, to get there. Even they've been invited. Maybe that should be the final scene. Maybe what actually happens is Money Penny thinks she's on her own listening to Barry Manilow and then the Afghan resistance just burst in and just go, welcome, well, yeah, just sort of waving, just sort of, they all call, they really love Barry Manilow as well. Number six. Just missing out on the top five, it's Goldeneye. Uh, you know, what to say about Goldeneye that we haven't said. I mean, it is a modern action classic. It's stylish and sexy. It goes like a bullet. And I think it's the one that really made, it, it really sort of with this one, we know that the Bond series is never going to die. It can recreate itself so much and sort of reflect the time so much that its relevance will just be eternal. Um, there was actually a bit of discrepancy uh, in where we individually put this one. It only just crept into my top 10. And Phil, you put it as your number two. Too. So you're a huge GoldenEye fan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I look back at the kind of the Bond films, uh, you know, all 24 of them, there are certain films that kind of piqued my interest. And you look back at GoldenEye, this was so important as a film for getting me interested in the Bond series because my dad bought it for me on VHS and I can still remember sort of cherishing this VHS tape. And it was just always so enjoyable to come back to it. It's, it's kind of partly those fond memories of, of growing up as a child and, you know, watching GoldenEye with, with your dad or with your uncle or, you know, or whoever it was, you know, sitting down as a family and watching it. There's nothing about it that I would change. There's nothing that I would say, you know, that could have been better or that could have been improved. For me, it's, it's just 
it's superb the way that it's put together. You know, when Brosnan's on top form, Sean Bean's on top form, Famke Janssen's on top form, you know, Robbie Coltrane's on top form, you know, M and, you know, Judy Dench and, um, you know, Ev Desmond Lell, everybody behind it. It's affectionate that, you know, 25 years on, I still love it so much. And I can't really say that for many other films. It's uh, difficult to follow that impassioned speech there, Phil. Uh, I'd say in the middle there, you said that you wouldn't change a thing about it. I think oh, I probably would. Let's, uh, let's have Jack Wade doing something at the end and not just nicking off with the car. And uh, also, of course, Eric Serra's score could be, <laughs> could be changed. Uh, but apart from that, I'd go along with everything else that you said. Excellent film, excellent action, excellent comedy. I think it just shows how brilliant Martin Campbell is at uh, reinventing Bond. Let's have him back for Bond 26, if he's still alive. Oh, yeah, he's still good. He's 78, so I don't know how... Uh, I mean, presumably he is still just going to yell action rather than, than call it and be telling the lead Bond actor to be uh, sharp as a knife, sharp as a knife, before he, uh, he acts in every scene. Um, I, I must say this also shows that the longer you wait for a Bond film, the better it turns out to be. I think pretty much without fail, all the Bond films that you have had to wait for four years or more for are pretty much consistently brilliant. I mean, Skyfall was a long wait. Casino Royale was a long wait. Uh, this was a very long wait. Hopefully it'll bear out again for No Time to Die. So yeah, I, I, when they take their time and really focus in on getting a Bond film absolutely perfect, nine times out of 10, they pretty much do manage to do that. And we move into the top five. And at number five, it's The Spy Who Loved Me. So this one is the, the highest placed Roger Moore film on our list, which uh, is testament to how excellent the top four are, because this is, uh, this is a fantastic Bond adventure. And uh, as we've said many times before, it's kind of got that perfect mixture of uh, action, suspense, drama, comedy. And uh, we've got uh, Bond in his uneasy working relationship with uh, Russian agent Amasova. We've got a brilliant menacing presence of uh, Jaws and my personal favourite, the, uh, the pathetic pyramid proclaimer, Sandor. Everything about The Spy Who Loved Me is just brilliant. It's a, it's a, I, I hasten to say it's a perfect Bond adventure, but of course I would have put it number one if it was completely perfect. But it's just it's just really good, isn't it, this one? Yeah, I adore this one as well. This this is For me, I put this as top three, so I put this third. For me, yeah, it's, it's just, there's a great interplay. Again, it's for me, probably the fondest memory is obviously the Lotus Esprit, fondly nicknamed Wet Nelly because of that great sequence where it plunges into the sea. There's just so many great moments in this film. And, and, you know, I think that for most Bond fans, they always look back on this one with a great deal of fondness and a great deal of familiarity because, again, it kind of defines the 70s and it kind of defines that great era of luxury and, and you know, and Bond has been, again, kind of going back to the jet set, the fact that Bond is off to all these glamorous locations and it's a huge adventure. It's a great film, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I mean, unquestionably, I think Roger Moore's best film. And like Golden Knight, came at a time when the series could have gone either way. It could have stopped at this point. And the first two Roger Moores, you know, I mean, Live and Let Die was very financially successful, but Man with the Golden Gun very much wasn't. And there were question marks over it. This just comes roaring back. I mean, it is maximum entertainment, this one, isn't it? You know, it's very difficult to think of a film I have more fun watching than this one. Um, and it's almost like a screwball comedy, you know, with the Bond and a massive relationship you could almost parachute in Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn at their peak bringing up baby uh, sort of comic heights into this one and and it would fit pretty much as well and, and it probably wouldn't be better than what Moore and Back achieve with it it's 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 just fantastic this one 
And of course, let's not forget the iconic British parachute off the edge of the cliff, which has uh, often been mentioned by our fan favourite Alan Partridge uh, in the past. He's going to die! James Bond's going to die! So, on to number four, and it's Daniel Craig in his debut as James Bond for Casino Royale. This, of course, the 2006 film. Martin Campbell returning to um, the director's chair. Again, this was kind of hugely important for us guys as Bond fans because, we obviously, we all went to see it at the cinema. And again, after the nightmare that was Die Another Day, it was hugely important that the Bond franchise got back on track. And this one certainly gave us a hugely impressive spectacle. You know, a, a really vibrant and, and brilliantly put together film that brought the Bond franchise bang up to date in terms of bringing it to a modern audience. Yeah, I think quite rightly, this one very high on the list. And I think, um, I mean, some Bond fans have this as the number one. And I, I can see why that's understandable as well. I think uh, just an excellent, excellent introduction to Daniel Craig's Bond. And uh, also the other supporting characters are all brilliant as well. Vesper Lind, Le Chiffre. Uh, and I think we we mentioned in, the, in our review of Casino Royale how it all worked together so well. Even the casino scenes, which you might expect to be quite dull, are incredibly exciting. And then they're intercut, interspliced with uh, even more action-packed scenes outside of the casino room uh, it's just incredible that we get uh, a film with the, the same name that can be so different and <laughs> so much better than uh, another casino royale well i think the key there is that this film really shows off the original genius of ian fleming you know the the 67 casino royale goes wildly away from the book and fails miserably this actually sticks pretty close to it and and that's probably part of the reason why it is so good i mean it starts as this whiplash modern action thriller incredibly slick but then it folds back into an espionage character drama and that sort of intriguing sly thriller that Fleming originally wrote and it sticks to that really closely and I think that's where a lot of its power comes from but the human side of it is drawn out far more and you know Daniel Craig and Eva Green sell that central relationship so well we've talked about the best Bond films feeling timeless I was stunned watching this again just how timeless it felt it felt like it could have been released yesterday uh, and yet it's it's already coming on for like 15 years old so no I, I was just so excited watching this one again i was taken back to when i watched it for the first time yeah for me this is also the only film where i've audibly gasped in the cinema and that was of course the moment where the aston martin dbs does the world record launch of eight rolls when bond is chasing to save vespa lind and obviously just misses her uh, in that really dramatic scene so it's it's one of those all-time great moments in cinematic history and i think it's you know this is one of the like certainly one of the very best of all bombs. I think you misspoke there, Phil. I think we uh, we once watched uh, The Matador, a dreadful Pierce Brosnan film in which you audibly gasped at how bad it was. Did I? I can't remember that. Maybe I was incorrect. Oh, The Matador. Yeah, I, I remember rather liking The Matador. And then I went and told you guys that I'd rather liked it. And then you both went and said, what are you talking about? It's terrible. Maybe that's another one to go back to, another, another Brosnan classic. <laughs> Yeah, certainly in the future, it'll be a good one. Um, yeah, I, I rather like Brosnan's kind of washed up uh, hitman, um, kind of subversive Bond parody in that film. I just, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Number three. 
So we're into the top three with the film that I personally put at number one, which is On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, I've, I've already talked a lot about why I love this film. It's the first huge risk that the Bond franchise takes. It's the one that says we can last beyond the 60s and beyond Connery. It's the best directed. I mean, Peter Hunter's editor of the previous films was pushing uh, in his editing what an action film looks like and how avant-garde it can be. Uh, and he brings that to the direction here as well. Uh, just see like that that scene before uh, Bond goes into Draco's office and then he fights with all the uh, the henchmen it's so choppy it's crash zoom after crash zoom it's close up after close up there are feet coming into the camera lens people flying backwards like the whole visual planning of that sequence is just second to none uh, and of course the storyline itself I think is the one that elevates Bond to the level of grand tragedy it, it takes him to a place you you never really see him go to again that final scene is the most extraordinary final scene not just of any Bond film perhaps of any action film I can't think of anything else which is as subversive and, and just traumatic I guess as that it, it knocks you for six and, and every time I see it I'm just I'm floored by it all over again yeah I think for me Adam it's it's so lavishly put together and it's it, the cinematography is so beautifully done you know it's so elegant and so vibrant in terms of the things like the colours and, and the way that it's all shot and put together and, and as you say that ending is it's every time you watch it it doesn't lose any of its gravitas it doesn't lose any of that emotional impact you know it's still a gut punch it's still it's still horrific even though every time you know what's coming and you know even George Lazenby credit to him because you know he had such a huge task on his hands to take the franchise forward from where we'd seen with Connor and it was it was always going to be difficult to do and I, I think he does it really really well yeah I'd say unlike Spectre which has that uh, kind of revisionist view of being bad now generally I go along with the rest of the the Bond community which uh, used to consider this one one of the worst films but now considers it one of the best personally I don't particularly like the storyline with Blofeld I think the setting is incredible his Gloria of course uh, I'm not so keen on the, the Angels of Death but everything else is, is brilliant yeah I think I go along with what you said there brilliant cinematography and such a poignant ending as well with the, with the death of Tracy. I think John Barry's score as well is, is arguably his best in this one. The fact that he, he combines a sort of electronic sound with the classic Bond sounds, it just gives it a really different feel and a, and a real edge and a drive to it. But also when he slows the music down, that dawn raid on Piz Gloria with the three helicopters cut between, you know, the, the sun coming up behind them and, uh, you know, Tracy seducing Blofeld to distract him with that great poetic dialogue. And just John Barry scoring that, it's so slow, but it's clearly building and building and building. And there's this tinkling xylophone he puts in as well, which just sends shivers down your spine. It's, it's just every sequence in this, I think, is just stunningly put together. Number two. Just missing out on Top Spot, although it was my personal number one Bond film from Russia with Love. For a long time, this was my number two, actually, but having revisited the film, uh, I think this has to be considered the, the best. Uh, it builds on everything that was established about the Bond character in Doctor No, but it raises the stakes exponentially. We've got a real Cold War espionage thriller. Uh, I think it's got a great plot. It's got the best ally of the series in Karen Bay. Uh, it's got the most menacing Blofeld. I'll finally agree with Adam and say Blofeld in the shadows is, uh, is the better Blofeld. We've got the best hench Redgrant, to which all of the 
future Bond films have uh, aspired to recreate and have uh, fallen short to varying degrees. I think it's got fantastically memorable secondary villains as well, Kleb and Kronstein, of course. Uh, it's got Sean Connery, the best Bond, at his absolute best, suave, sophisticated, witty. It's got the introduction of Desmond Llewellyn as, as well. It's got some uh, fabulous scenes in and around the train. Uh, I think it's just got everything. It's even got John Ketteringham as the fake James Bond at the beginning being killed. It's it's the best Bond film, in my opinion, but it's, uh, it's the cubbyholes number two. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think this is a superb bomb film and, you know, it's much closer to kind of probably real-world espionage than any of the other ones as well because it's just simply because of the fact that, you know, the stakes that are there for Bond and the fact that he's having to actually go into the underworld and it just builds really, really well and the fact that even things like the gadgets are, uh, seem realistic, you know, they're, they're not as sort of fanciful as what we'd see later on. The villains seem more real-world, you know, you get that astonishing fight sequence on the train between Red Grant and Bond there's really emotive moments when Karen Bay gets murdered by Red Grant, you know, and there's that really moving moment where, you know, kind of Bond sees his ally has been has been murdered. You know, Daniela Bianchi is the, the Bond woman is really, really good as well. And it's, I just, I, I hold a lot, I'm indebted to this film re- quite a lot because of how much it helped me get into the Bond franchise. Yeah, it's it was my number two. On a, if you ask me on a different day, it'd be my number one. I must admit, um, it, it's just not a, just a great Bond film. It's I think a classic film in its own right. I, I think outside of a series, it, it stands up equally well. Um, the look is is just like silk. I mean, it looks astonishing, and you can cut the atmosphere with a knife in every single scene, particularly ones where no one says anything. Just Bond looking for bugs in his hotel room becomes one of the most memorable charged moments of cinema you've ever seen. Him stalking, you know, a contact in a mosque, I think it is, whilst, uh, you know, um, Daniela Bianchi is sort of walking in the distance, but then Red Grant is also looming in the shadows. Just the interplay between those four characters in that scene is so suspenseful and dynamic. So yeah, this is just a, a stunning film. It does beg the question, does Sylvia Trench dump Bond between this and Goldfinger? I mean, you know, famously she's in the first two, we don't see her again. Does she just finally get fed up of him kind of having a quickie with her in the middle of these lavish, sexy dates and then just buggering off? She, she was a bit of a golf fan, wasn't she? I think uh, she goes off with Hawker. Turns out she's just on a, a different hole, like behind, she's the hole behind at uh, the golf club and she's getting increasingly frustrated by how slow Goldfinger and Bond are being in their round. Can I just say as well, in this film, Sean Connery is so cool. He's just so suave and sophisticated. It's just the suits he's wearing. This is where it's the archetypal sort of perhaps stereotype we see of like a James Bond. This is where we see it starting to emerge, you know, that really sophisticated kind of upper class gent. It's just, it's so brilliantly put together. Red wine with fish. That should have told me something. Number one. Okay, and are we ready now for the number one? You've probably already guessed it based on the previous entries. It is, of course, Goldfinger, the 1964 epic that gave Sean Connery his his mojo, really, in the role of Bond. In this one, we see him battling Auric Goldfinger, perhaps one of the greatest Bond villains of them all. For me, this is my all-time favourite. Um, Adam and Martin placed it a little bit lower down, but it's just, this was the first Bond film I ever watched, and it kind of proved that you don't need to see them in sequence to be able to get into the franchise. It was just so exciting, so enjoyable. Considering it was made in 1964, it still feels fresh and modern now. It still feels 
like a film that any modern audience could get into. The, not just the greatest Bond film of them all, but it's just a brilliant film full stop. It's just one of those films where you don't have to be interested in James Bond. You can just sit down and watch it and still enjoy it and still understand it. It is superb. Yeah, I feel like we're in a similar position to what we were in the review for Goldfinger when we did it uh, many, many weeks ago. It's quite difficult to come up with uh, something new to say about Goldfinger that people haven't heard already. Uh, but yeah, I go along with what you said, Phil, just a really enjoyable film. It's a fun film, but it's also brilliantly put together as well. Even though I didn't put it at the top of my list, I don't feel bitter about, uh, about having Goldfinger as number one. Yeah, no, same. It wasn't my personal number one, but I think it is absolutely a worthy number one. It's the point of origin for what we now see a Bond film as being and just the the, the sheer iconography of the elements of it. I mean, it'll always be the one that every Bond film is ultimately measured up to. But like you've said, the thing that going back to watching it this time is I watched it so much when I was young that I kind of overwatched it a bit and I, and I kind of went off it a little bit and didn't watch it for a while. But going back to it, it's so much fun. It's so entertaining, like The Spy Who Loved Me. It's impossible, I think, to have a bad time watching this film. Um, not my personal number one. I do think there are slight problems with it. I think it's quite a passive Bond for the second half of the film. And I always like Bond to be a little bit more active. There are obviously individual moments and we've talked about Pussy Galore in the Barn. But overall, yeah, this is a very worthy number one. It's generally known as the best of the Bond films, and, and so Roger Moore's Cubby Hole have also found it. Incidentally, though, where did Dink go? You know, she's sort of patted on the behind and sent away from her massage, but but what happened to her after that? Do you think she's Sylvia Trench's golf partner? Do you think they just play golf together? Or do you think Felix Leiter afterwards uh, just kind of went running after her, the great Czech Linda, Phil? The attractiveness of, of Czech Linda that got your attention, Phil, wasn't it? So he's certainly a handsome man who could uh, who could attract Dink. Well, this goes back to our discussion going right the way back to Jack Lord in Doctor No. Of course, we did a poll of who was the better of the Felix Lighters, and and I, I was incorrect in suggesting that Czech Linda was a better lighter than Jack Lord. I think Rick Van Nutter was also in the running as well. I think did you guys sort of prefer Rick Van Nutter over Czech Linda as well? Well, well, it was famously you didn't prefer Rick Van Nutter over Czech Linda, which I found very bizarre since Rick Van Nutter looks a bit more dynamic and like he can handle himself and isn't just sat in a KFC or looking at horses. I mean, we can agree they're both a bit better than Norman Burton in Diamonds Are Forever, though, can't we? I mean, if Czech Linda is a KFC man, maybe Norman Burton is just a sort of Taco Bell man. Just, you know, a slightly lower down, inferior product. Oh, no, but maybe he's Chick King, actually. Maybe he's the worst of the worst. Maybe he's just, he's just like a really low budget one. Does that make David Hedison Nando's? Yes, it absolutely makes David Hedison Nando's. Okay, so that was the official Roger Moore's Cubbyhole rankings list, the best of Bond, 24 all the way to number one, Goldfinger, which we consider the, the best James Bond film. Do keep in touch with our social media accounts and, of course, send us an email if you have any future questions for us. We'll be taking a short break, but we'll be back for series number two in February 2021, uh, where we'll have plenty of Bond content for you to enjoy. But that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Goldfinger. He's the man, the man with the mightest touch. 
gold finger. Do, 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 Here's the man, the man with the Midas touch. I'll stop singing now because I think people's ears are bleeding. 